PSA for those who are into hip hop and are on Twitter. Do not make a top 50 list. Just don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. Put put the pen down. Put put the pen down. Put put it down. Thank you. That is all. In the words of Public Enemy's Chuck D, who is top 50, bring the noise. <laughs> Fulfillment Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. It is a rainy day here in in, in sunny old England, as usual, ladies and gentlemen. Don't know if you can hear behind me, but there are raindrops coming on my window, which is probably the first time we've had rain in about a week or so. But well, yeah, yeah, about a week or a few days anyway. I don't know. It's it's it's, uh, it's all one big blur, to be honest. But anyway. Other than that, it's been a good week. Uh, hope, you, hope you guys have been uh, been well, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week. Um, mine's been pretty, pretty solid, actually. Pretty productive, I will say that. Um, my productivity has gone up, which I'm happy about. Uh, it's my sister's birthday yesterday, as I, as I record. So, happy birthday, sis. Happy birthday, Blair. Blay birthday. Um, I got her some headphones, and because she isn't here at the moment, she's at a festival, she allowed me to try them, and oh my god. Oh my god. I made a purchase. <laughs> I made a clean purchase. So yeah, uh, big up, big up the neurophone because I'm getting the earphone version. You know that's you know that's facts. Uh, yeah, other than that, it's, uh, yeah, it's been pretty good. As you, if you guys go frequent on the fifthfilmdog.uk, you know there are there is now uh, officially a dedicated page for both what's good and digging in the digits, which I am very happy about. Uh, so I don't have to do articles, and that cuts off about 15, 20, 30 minutes of my of my uh, of my time to actually do this uh, to do all this show fully. So I am happy about that. But yeah, other than that, it's been uh, it's been pretty decent, you know. Just uh, just continue to do my things. I hope you guys are doing your things as well. So. Shall we get into the show? Yes, we shall. Formalities before we begin. We have the email, we have the Facebook, we have the Twitter. This is all there in the description below. And without further ado, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. Where German authorities say they have seized 4.5 tons of cocaine worth 1.1 billion dollars in in the northern port city of Hamburg. Imagine that. Imagine being the police dude and you just uncover like four tons, 4.5 tons of coke. I don't even know what that looks like. What does even what does it four tons of coke look like? You know what I mean? Oh jeez, those, those are brick bricks. Those are brick shithouse bricks. <laughs> Jeez, man. Uh, Ethiopia actually planted 350 million trees in 12 hours. Don't know if you guys saw that. Clearly went over the news people's heads. Uh, Man City beat Liverpool on penalties to win back-to-back Community Shields. First time since 2002 a team has gone back-to-back. Is that a sign for what's to come? Probably. Uh, Two mass shootings in the US spot. Gun control conversation once again. I mean, uh, I I was wondering if I had anything to say about it for... You know, since I put it, since I wrote this down on my agenda, I was just like, 
Not really, because everything else has been said. What else can you really say? That you know, Honestly, in the past couple of years, right, this is kind of a little tangent. In the past couple of years, I mean, I mean especially when I was a teenager, I really wanted to go to America. Really, really, I was one of those guys. I was, I was, I was like, I'm gonna live in America. I'm gonna live it up. No, 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 no. I don't want to touch that country anymore. I literally, I just don't. I just don't. I'd go there for you know, like a well, a couple of weeks, like you know, a week or so. I ain't living there. I ain't residing in the U.S. I ain't getting dual citizenship in the U.S. You know what I mean? I ain't doing that no more. That's that's not the vibe. That's not the vibe. It's it's clearly, it's clearly gotten to a point. And you know, if I educated myself as a you i probably you know know much faster that that country ain't it it really isn't it really isn't it it's just it is 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 it's crazy it's, it's crazy from healthcare to guns obviously to food i don't know it's just um it's just a bit it's all a bit sketchy for me it's all a bit sketchy and i ain't about that uh trains from manchester to london are costing more than flights to new york which jesus christ um uh, you, you, we have to, we have to renationalize. We have to renationalize. Just, you know, I, I know, I know that's just a basic, basic foundation. People say just renationalize it, renationalize, it. and you know, there might be, there might be cons to that. I don't know, but anything's got to be better than this. This London to Manchester train, which takes around eight hours, if I take a guess, and probably even longer than that. And it's the same price, it's more expensive than flights to New York. Don't take the piss. Unbelievable. And uh, the NTAA set a new criteria for agents declaring they need a bachelor's degree to get their foot in the door. Which, if you're in basketball circles, you know this is the Rich Paul rule. Rich Paul is a agent, uh, most notably agent of uh, LeBron James and actually a childhood friend of LeBron James and got into the agent game without a degree, without anything really, without any prior knowledge. So he kind of built himself from the ground up, you know what I mean? Uh, just, uh, 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 what's the word? Um, uh, just w- threw, threw himself in the deep end, that's, that's the phrase. He threw himself in the deep end and now he's one of the most feared people in in sports really in, in especially in basketball so he has he has a a, a big ass portfolio of 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 players that he represents so and this thing that the NCAA who's the college body basically governing body of uh, you know college sports they're setting these they're setting these rules that you know they have to that if agents want to represent a college player so they can you know before just before they get into the pros they have to have this bachelor's degree they have to have all these qualifications and they have to be with the uh mbpa for three years or some shit you know these these are hoops these are hoops so if someone like rich paul obviously not rich paul because rich paul is clearly bigger than this but if anyone if anyone wants to do the rich Paul model, which you know isn't logical, let's be real. You know, why would you do that? But if you, if those are the tools you have, and that's what you have to do, then you have to do it. But obviously, they're trying to stop these kind of uh, these these kinds of people to come through, and it's just it's just ugly. It's just ugly. And uh, just to, and just to say before I begin, uh, you know, before the sh- before the beat dropped, I you know said uh, don't do top fifties. Just a little background, there have been going in hip-hop Twitter circles, and in hip-hop anywhere circles, honestly, there there was a top 50 that was through, thrown around by a, by a podcast, and uh, I forgot the name of it, and it was terrible, it was 
it was one of the worst lists I've ever seen, and I'm I I like I like my lists. I like my lists, but Jesus Christ, that's that is that is terrible. It was a terrible list. It, it, it burned my eyes. But I wouldn't even talk about it if if uh, if it was just that, and you know if other people did their lists, which I have seen a couple more. Um, but it's when people like Ebro, who's a uh, hip hop personality i guess and i think he's a dj i'm not really sure but he hosts he hosts radio shows on like a hot 97 of beats one in america so he's pretty he's pretty on he's pretty on the pulse you know what i mean and he's been in the game for a few years you know for a few decades you know what i mean it's when people like that do their lists and they're just as well not just as egregious but still egregious uh thing two thing two things that um these the all these lists have told me um one there are uh, actually it's just one thing actually the f- the one the one thing that really irks me about all of these lists is the lack of women you're telling me that the only women you will po- you will even think about putting on your list is miss lauren hill nikki minaj and miss elliot are you serious it's a top 50 guys come on people like lloyd banks Ain't on Rhapsody's level. Ain't on Queen Latifah level. Ain't on MC Light level. No disrespect to Lloyd Banks, but fucking hell. Come on. S- seriously. Come on. There, there, I could I could put at least 10 women in there. And, you know, dare you to... I dare you to mess up my list. But, but you know what? I won't even do a list. Not a top 50 anyway. I could do a top 10. Easy. I could do a top 10. I could do a top 20... If I, you know, if you gave me a few days to think about it, I ain't doing the top 50. You know why? Because unlike you guys, I know I'm not educated in some things. I haven't listened to Scarface fully and people putting Scarface in there. And I, and I can't say anything because, you know, I just, I just don't want to say, I, I can't, I'm not educated. I'm not educated in the KRS-One like I want to be. I'm not educated in, uh, who else? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, my point made. I'm, if you're not educated... Don't do a freaking list. Or do your list and say explicitly that you're not educated in some people, so you're just going to leave them out. That's why I do anyway. But I'm not going to do top 50 anyway, because that's just yeah, too long. But anyway, um, let's begin with... Uh, oh, where shall we begin, actually? Let's, let's start with Toni Morrison, actually, because uh, Toni Morrison, uh, amazing uh, author... Nobel Prize winning author, um, died, uh, rest in peace, died uh, age 88 the other day, and I kind of wanted to, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about it, not even just me talking about it in the sense, I just wanted to acknowledge it, I guess, because I feel like there are, there are some times where I see, you know, someone, someone's passed or whatever, and... I I can't really say anything on it, you know what I mean? And it kind of it, and I feel kind of guilty because of it. It's a similar thing to last week when I was talking about Russ G and uh, Nipsey Hussle, where you know people list, started listening to Nipsey Hussle after he died, and you know people were berating them people for listening after he died. It's like, what's your what's your deal? If if you listened to Nipsey while he was alive, then good for you. If you listen, if if you uh, if you read Toni Morrison and are inspired by Toni Morrison while she's alive, then good for you. 
unfortunately, I wasn't one of those people. And I kind of feel guilty for it, simply because of the words that people, you know, that I know of and that inspire me in a way, have talked about her in the past couple, in the past day or so, in the past 24 hours. And I just wanted to... I just wanted to talk about it in a in in that kind of way of just the fact and just put you know just put ahead preface that I am not educated in Toni Morrison at all. Uh, I haven't read any of her books. I have not seen Beloveds. I have seen quotes from her now and again every every you know few every you know now and again <laughs> when when you know uh, especially people in America you know um, laureates and writers and just black women as well in general um just constantly quote her and i'm just uh and it's always fascinating so i guess in her death i'm finally re i'm finally getting a, 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 i guess a um what's the word a scope in terms of what she was about so i just wanted to read this because this is this will I, I think this will help us for you know people that are in my boat that don't know who tony morrison is in you know specifically in any way i think this will be a good place to begin and i've read a couple of things i, I read her obituary via the guardian that was very that was cool uh, i read another thing i think by diane abbott it was a, an opinion piece that she dropped yesterday so yeah that was uh, that was quite good but i wanted i wanted to read this so this is um uh this is just a, a set of writers and uh, other and other notable people uh, doing their own personal tributes so I just wanted to I just wanted to give this a read because um there is a lot of you know you probably haven't heard of these people you really yeah I'm gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say you haven't heard of these people but I think the way they talk about her is is um, prevalent and very eye-opening I guess in terms of her legacy which is good so let's get into this uh this the first one is by Ben Ockrey who's a, a writer Toni Morrison didn't begin writing late, but she published much later than most writers after a career in publishing as an editor in New York. This meant she gave the impression of coming into her literary life fully formed, with all the inflections of her style and the unique jazz-tinged poetry of her tone that encompassed the inward textures of black life. Seen from the vantage point of wounded women who nevertheless have the strength to be witnesses to the brutalities of history on black lives and the unexpected redemptions, hard-won and ambiguous. She burst into the world of literature at a time that needed her supremely wrought perspective and was, not, and was by no means the first black woman writer to have such a strong presence on the literary scene in the US. When she arrived with her first no novel, The Bluest Eye, she immediately reordered the American literary landscape. That voice had not existed before, those cadences cutting through the tan tangled slices of the American racial undergrowth, immensely fluid, capable of weaving the weaving the past and the present in a manner than which were in a manner than was epical in compression. In novel after novel, with heft and a, uh, and an electric charge, she revealed the brut brutalized psyche of deep singing women, of men whom. The appalling way of slavery and racial dehumanization had wrought destructive traumas. The novels discharge these traumas. Sorry, the novels discharge these traumas. This is the next sentence. Uh, blasting them out from the secret caverns of unknown lives. In a prose that is threaded and shafted with intelligence, wit, unpredictability, tough truth. Then in 19 1977, a novel appeared that stood out from 
the many superb productions of the age, it was Song of Solomon. And when we read it for the first time, it was as if some biblical revelation of prose had been unleashed in America, and all that pain, all that magic, had been given a voice that transcended, transcended expectation. With Song of Solomon, a writer joined the forefront of the writers of her land. She was up there with Richard Wright, Saul Bellow, Ralph Ellison, Philip Roth, James Baldwin, writers who were challenging the inflection and timber, tomba, tombra, I forgot, I forgot how to say that, uh, of the American dream. But it was with Beloved in 1987 that her place in US literature was definitively sealed. It is an unprecedented work both in its execution and the incidental narrative that endangered in its appearance and in the world. In its appearance in the world, sorry. It must be, it must surely be the singular case of a novel that drew, with justification, the combined wrath of writers who were shocked that this great novel had not been honoured in the highest literary prize of his land. The roll call of writers who signed the petition demanding that the novel be properly honoured is itself a list of the most significant writers of the times. But Beloved is a novel that hovers over prizes. It was a national epic, breaching the veil between the living and the dead. A symphony of voices, a high watermark, and not surprisingly voted the best novel in American literature over the past 50 years. There is about Morrison's oeuvre, is it oeuvre? I think it is oeuvre. Uh, a remarkable unity of tone and address, and a moral strength and integrity. The body of her work is not vast, but it has remarkable compression of the and the fire of an unmistakable vitality. When she won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993, she had published only six novels, but they were enough to etch a new space on the shelves of the literature of the world. Her shorter novels are fascinating, and her essays always enrich in their ep- elliptical tone. It is common to speak of her as a black writer who wrote about race and slavery and the trauma of black female lives. But she is something more. Excuse me. Both a witness and a cele- both a, a witness and a celebrant. It would be a pity to miss the beauty of her language and her far-sightedness in our desire to anchor her in contemporary relevance. She was brave, generous, and rhythmically compe- compelling. To hear her read her work is to be given another secret dimension of her appeal. She was a literary warrior in whose work the U.S. peered into the black mirror of its untold truths. But her work spoke to people everywhere, to their traumas and their joys, and language which inspiration was at home. I'm going to skip a couple of these because they're obviously very lengthy and I don't want to read all of them. There's one by Ella Wakatama Alfrey, who's an editor and critic, a very interesting one. I'll read this one by Aminata Fauna, who's also a writer. Morrison was one of the greatest of a generation of writers who helped shift the centre of the literary imagination. She did so in her choice theme and character, voicing the African-American experience through black protagonists, and she brilliantly subverted expectations by choosing, at times, to identify only white characters by skin colour, or erasing mention of colour from her narrative altogether. Having lived in the US for the past four years, I feel her most significant contribution is to have memorialised memorialized sorry through art the history and horror of slavery in a country that has that thus far failed publicly to acknowledge or to even redress for this original sin this task has been left to artists specifically american african-american artists morrison's legacy in commemorating slavery's survivors will endure and uplift for centuries to come
So I think uh, what what we're getting here is clearly someone who was um, who was a voice in talking about pain, and I think it's one of those. I think it's one of those things of a cathartic nature where if you acknowledge the pain and you you know and you put it on wax, so to speak, then obviously healing can begin. You know. When you acknowledge something as a negative in yourself or, you know, or something around you, you feel a little bit better, especially if it's something about yourself. Because now that you've acknowledged that this negative thing has happened, you can start to, you can start to heal and grow from that, you know, and obviously America is one of those places like I kind of said before, where as a country they refuse to acknowledge, they refuse, they refuse to, they refuse to open wounds to actually treat it. They just leave it as that gammy scar that they have. You know, it can be properly treated, but they just decide not to. They just decide to put, you know cow shit in it and you know and 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 think it's done you know i mean they rely they're they're kind of relying on old-timey medicine that doesn't work and scientifically doesn't work but because it was the thing because it was because it was the team you know 300 years ago they consider it fine you know let's put some um let's put some uh, honey and some uh fish eyes in it (laughs) you know what i mean it's it's kind of like that and people like and people like Tony Morrison is one of those people that tried to actually put some proper some proper medicine into that wound. And I guess for people that read her and read her in their childhood are clearly all the better for it because they register the pain and because of that, the quicker you register it and the quicker you learn your history the quicker the the better that you will become much faster you could be in your 20s and you know and you know things that are still applicable to life and are still relevant into in your in your in your scope especially if you're an african american person so it's just what it's just um it's just clear is is what it's something i'm getting from this uh, clearly uh let's continue with a couple let's give i'll give you a couple more uh, a couple of short ones, uh, more short ones, uh, preferably. Uh, I suggest, I highly suggest you read all of this, by the way. So, um, you know, every every one that comes through is just a little bit different in their way, and uh, uh, and obviously they all have their own vocal tones to it, and you can feel the weight they put into it, which is always, uh, which is always something I value when reading. Uh, this one is by Carol Phillips, who is an author and playwright. Morrison almost single-handedly took American fiction forward in the second half of the 20th century to a place where it could finally embrace the subtleties and contradictions of the great stain of race which has blighted the Republic since its inception. She broke ground not only as a writer of great fiction and non-fiction, but as one of the most influential editors of her time, a pioneer being both black and female, but more than this, an inspiration with her unswerving support for books and the authors in whom she believed, she fought tenaciously as a writer and as an editor. So it's fascinating how they're putting this, they're putting this, you know, 
<laughs> how she put all of this on her back. You know, she took all of this, all of this um, unspoken, unspoken angst, and put it on her back, or injected it into her veins, and then just bled it out onto the page. That's fascinating to think, you know, and 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 kind of crazy to think about. There's not many authors like that who can take a entire history of a country and you know and, and obviously you know still to this day the remnants are still there let's be real the remnants are still there in america so you know it's not it's it's, it's obviously not you know completely eradicated for lack of a better phrase but to even try to do that is a marvel in itself and clearly from you know from uh, how uh, okri was talking about uh, people petitioning for her to get on for her for her book to get honored that's crazy to me that's crazy to me that's a, that's a level that's a level that is just amazing to think about um a quick one another quick one here by Alice Walker who's a novelist uh, we have lost a great writer whose extraordinary novels have leave an indelible print on the consciousness of all who read them or a force her thoughts have been and how grateful we must be that they were offered to us in this extremely challenging age um I will how long have I got? I'll give myself one more. Um I'm gonna go I'm gonna go for a slightly long one, just um just just for the just for the hell of it. Actually, this one's good actually. Okay. This one's by Hannah Azeeb Paul, who is artistic director and CEO of the Bernie Grants R Centre, which I've been to a couple of times uh, for a couple of events. Amazing venue. and uh, big up big ups to big ups to Hannah there. Uh, I can't remember a time when I didn't love Morrison. She moved to the very core of me at a young age. But the book that changed me the most was Beloved. It's such raw and beautiful storytelling. It changed me in a way that was almost physical. It gave me the confidence to own my blackness, especially in my writing. To voice it, to articulate it, to be proud of it, not to shy away from it. And to understand that black stories are universal and at the same time very specific. You knew you were safe in her hands. She found a way to take the violence inflicted on black bodies, structural and systemic violence, and turn it into beautiful storytelling without glossing over anything or losing the politics. She's a vital example of black of a black woman writer who took on the mantle of being black in a literary and a, being a black literary icon to create a space for generations of black female writers who came up after her. That's why we all feel we have ownership of her that she's ours. The thought of no more words from Morrison, particularly in a world where we're in the world we are at the moment, is such a loss. At times like this, we look to our writers. To lose her voice at this time feels like a blow. Some writers you can always turn to to contextualise difficult moments in history in a way that makes me feel hopeful in spite of devastation. She was endlessly producing work that had, that reached across generations. So you didn't have to be of her experience to feel she was talking about your experience. Her impact and reach were incredible. It's a seismic loss. It feels as if a tectonic plate has shifted. It's odd how devastating it is to know she's not there here anymore. Because she gave black women everywhere a voice and a way of telling our own stories. So I'll leave it there. There's several There's several to, uh, There's several there to read that, that I've um, omitted there. And I highly recommend that you read it and also obviously you know like i'm going to try and do 
uh, read Toni Morrison's work. Or actually, I'm going to listen to audiobooks because I feel like I feel like it's imperative in a way, especially for someone who listens to audiobooks. I really appreciate when the author reads it. Um, I just really, I just because obviously when you're writing, um, you're writing in your voice, so to speak. And you're obviously putting your voice in a pa- on on the page in a way, and you're narrating it in a way. So to have her reading the audiobooks, which I have I have looked it up, she ha- she does read her own audiobooks, which is good. I it's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting of how she of how she voices herself. And um, there was a obviously through throughout yesterday, there were plenty of people that I follow and you know and I influenced by and aspire to be on their level too um they were posting a lot obviously posting a lot of uh, tony morrison quotes and videos about her there was a fascinating one that i highly recommend i don't know where it came from but it's an interview with her and she she's basically talking about race to this uh, to this dude and um she says something like um if you if you have to if you if you need to feel tall by standing on people and who's who by standing on people who are on their knees, then are you really strong at all? That's obviously paraphrasing, but it is very fascinating as it pertains. That is obviously in context, in context to context to race and how, you know, white people have this, not all white people, but obviously in just systemic, um, in systemic uh, context, you know, standing on the, standing on the backs of minorities and of people of color, do you feel? Do you really feel strong? If you take out the racism, do you really feel strong? Do you really feel that power that you have? You know, and I don't think that's just something that most white people can do. If you can, then big ups to you. Um, but it's something that just—I I mean, I don't—I don't think it. I don't think you know, white people could get to that level, uh, especially systemically, but it was a fascinating conversation to li- to watch, and um, I can't wait to, you know, listen to her stuff and also read it, so um, R.I.P. Toni Morrison, um, I can't wait to finally, unfortunately in these circumstances, uh, to get into your work, I look forward to it. So we move on uh, to film and television. Um, I actually have two live topics today, so uh, I'll probably do that um, next or in the end. Who knows? <laughs> we don't know. It might be third. It might be fourth. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So I wanted to talk about uh, this. Is um, this is fascinating article I saw? Well, today actually. Well, it dropped midnight today as I record. Um, it's called "More Bodyguards and Love Islands Needed." As UK viewers desert TV. Now I've been waiting for this kind of article for a while. Uh, I just I was just I was just bad, I was just biding my time because I do always wonder. Sometimes when I, you know, when I go downstairs and I slap on the TV, excuse me, and I you know, uh, and I watch the news or whatever, whatever I'm watching, and I do wonder who are these people that who who sits down and you know, with the family and watches TV still. Who 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 still does that? Who who's still about that goggle box life? 
not the show itself, but in terms of, you know, families sitting down and watching TV together. Who who still does that? Because, you know, I, st- I still try I still try and do it with my mother now and again. Um, I try and there's always a show, you know, I'm trying to watch and I feel like, you know, if she... If I think that she'll be interested in it anyway, I'll be like, yo, mom, come watch this, and we watch it. We're currently watching Killing Eve at the moment, series two, so that's a very fun That's a very fun watch for, for, both, for both of us. So yeah, we still do it, but we don't do it as regularly as we used to, uh, for whatever, circ- for certain circumstances. You know, I'm trying to do, you know, I'm trying to do my writing and stuff like that, and obviously the recording and stuff like that, and podcasts and stuff, so I'm always up in my room trying, trying to do work, but... You know, back in the day, we used to constantly sit down and watch TV. That's kind of where I lived, basically. I, I, I was always on the TV trying to find stuff to watch. And now I'm trying to switch it up and listen to music instead. And obviously, that's a very solitary thing. So, you know, that's just, that's just me. Don't know why I've given myself a psychological reading there, but hey-ho. Um, so, yeah, this is... Um, this is an article I've been waiting for for a while. So, let's get into it. This is by Mark Sweeney of uh, The Guardian here. Uh, the scale of the UK, of uh, the scale of the challenge UK broadcasters uh, face in the streaming era, and you know, side note, this is kind of harking back to the uh, the subscription wars episode that I did a couple of episodes ago. It's a very, this is very, you know, kind of an offset of that. So um, that's why I've been waiting for this one, this kind of article, so I could talk about it, uh, domestic and terrestrial TV. Anyway. Um, I'll start again anyway. Uh, the scale of the challenge UK broadcasters face in the streaming era has been thrown into stark relief by a new report, which estimates that 34 extra series of the BBC hit Bodyguard or 14 more Love Islands would have needed to air last year to make up for the drop in traditional TV viewing as the audiences flocked to rivals including Netflix, Amazon and YouTube. The report by the media regulator Ofcom highlights the huge growth in popularity of streaming services in the UK. The number of subscribers to the three most popular, Netflix, Amazon and now Sky's, uh, and Sky's Now TV, led by almost a quarter last year to 19.1 mil. Nearly half, 47% of UK homes now have a subscription streaming service, a significant increase on the 39% that, didn't, uh, that did in 2017, with many households paying for two or more. Uh, just a side note, uh, we have Now TV and Netflix. I don't use Now TV, to be honest. Um, you know, I have Sky, but I just use that. What's the point of using Now TV? I have Sky downstairs, so, you know, if you want to count that, yeah, I don't really. But I also have Netflix, and uh, that's something my mum's constantly on. She's constantly on Netflix if she's watching TV. Um, so, you know, that's, that's also another thing. If my mum's watching Netflix, <laughs> then, you know, Lord help terrestrial TV, <laughs> just to say. The rapid shift in the nation's viewing habits continues to erode the popularity of traditional TV viewing. The average Briton now watches 3 hours and 12 minutes of TV a day, a drop of 20 minutes in the last two years, and also and almost an hour since 2010. Wow. The UK's public service broadcasters, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, still provide the nation's water cooler moments. More than 12 million people tuned in to the final episode of Line of Duty earlier this year, and 14 million watched the conclusion of Bodyguard last year, making it the most watched drama of 2018. Ofcom's report, however, said, quote, A few popular drama and entertainment programmes are not enough on their own to stem the overall decline in broadcast TV viewing. ITV announced last month that it is to air two series of Love Island a year from 2019. Oh, fuck me, really. Ugh. Christ, okay. 
In an effort to bolster its audiences and commercial revenues, the second winter edition will be shot in South Africa. <laughs> oh, God, poor South Africa, I'm sorry. Love Island has proven a hit with young audiences. It's the most popular TV show. I just don't care. I'm just going to skip that paragraph. Sorry, guys. Ofcom report shows that the amount of traditional TV watched by 16 to 24-year-olds has halved since 2010 from 169 minutes a day to 85 minutes a day last year. The decline among 25 to 34-year-olds was 39% from 199 minutes to 122. The report shows that the main beneficiaries have been paid for streaming services such as uh, paid for streaming services, sorry, such as Netflix and YouTube's free online video platform. It found that 18 to 34 year olds spent the most time on YouTube each day, followed by Netflix and then ITV, BBC One, with Amazon Prime Video rounding out the top five sources of viewing. The report, entitled UK Becomes a Nation of Streamers, also found that Sil- the Silicon Valley providers have a paucity of UK content on their services. British public British public service broadcasters spent almost two point six billion pounds, making three thirty two thousand one hundred eighty eight hours of original programming last year, compared with the two hundred twenty one hours made available by the subscription video on demand services. Netflix and Amazon are estimated to spend a few just a few hundred million dollars of their combined twenty billion dollars sixteen point four billion pounds annual globing programming budgets in the UK. Uh, quote, public, services bro- public service broadcasters are still important in meeting viewers desire, for co- viewers' desire for UK content, said Ofcom. UK audiences want original UK-produced and UK-specific programmes. The vast majority of subscription video on-demand programmes are US-made productions designed to play out in multiple countries. Subscription video on-demand services, pri- from primarily Netflix and Amazon, became the most popular form of pay TV in the UK last year. Ofcom said the low-cost nature of the new streaming rivals, which offer subscriptions from less than £10 a month, uh, compared with pay TV packages costing as much as £100, has widened the gap markedly over the last year. Subscriptions to traditional pay TV services in the UK, such as Sky, Virgin Media, BT, TalkTalk Talk, and TalkTalk, Talk, stand at 14.3 mil, down from 15.1 in last year's report. ITV and the BBC are attempting to break into the booming subscription on video on demand market with the launch later uh, this year of BritBox, which will be priced at five ninety nine a month. So this is kind of why I expected. There are a couple of things there where I see myself in it. Um, I've increased, excuse me, I've increasingly begun. Well, actually, my my TV consumption has dramatically lowered in the past three years. You know, since I left for university, my TV habits have just plummeted uh, because I didn't have a TV throughout most of university. I just didn't bother, uh, you know, just looking looking up, uh, well, trying to watch TV. You know, I couldn't be bothered to pay for a license and then get a TV and then set up a free view box. Nah, nah, it's just effort. It's, not, it's no point. Sometimes I would, you know, clock something, uh, clock a show or a film that's being shown on TV, and I'd, you know, just ring up my mum going, like, record this so I can watch this during the Christmas break, you know what I mean? So when I get back, I'm watching TV, you know, and, uh, you yeah, because I had to kind of, um, it, it didn't feel 
as years went by, it didn't feel like, you know, going cold turkey from smoking. It didn't really feel like that. It wasn't like, I need my TV and, you know, scratching my wrists and stuff. It didn't, it didn't feel like that anymore. Um, and then it got replaced by music. And that's just me. Obviously, people have different uh, reasons for why they don't watch t- why they watch TV less. Um, obviously, the, you know, if I was living in my own place, there will be no way in hell... I'm paying for Sky. No way in hell. It's only because, you know, I'm still living with the fam that it's just there. And I pay for some of it, by the way. Just to, you know, just to say, I do pay my dues. You know, I'm, I pay for some of it. Um, I pay for I pay for the Sky bill, I think. Um, Sky or BT bill, or both. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just give it to my sister and she does whatever. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's... Um, if I was on my own, it would definitely not be... It, I would not be getting a Skybox or a Virgin Media or Talk to or BT. I wouldn't be getting any of that. Wouldn't? Why would I? What is the point? That's too much money, especially for someone like you know my age and you know everyone's everyone's pockets are, are you know pretty uh, tight these days. Um, but yeah, why would you when you have Netflix, you can cop Amazon Prime, and and they're just scratching the surface. Think of the amount of film uh, streaming services there are. I can name like three off the bat. Mubi, Criterion Collection, Canopy. There you go, that's three. There are so many more. There's one like specifically for horror. You know, and I've said this before. I think I said it a few weeks ago. But yeah, it's, you know, this is scratching the surface. The market share is, you know, so wide right now. And the competition for eyes is so, so hard. How can BBC and ITV, you know, gain these eyes again? How can they get them back? You know, they can show Love Island all they want. I mean, I personally ain't watching it because, ugh, rather, you know, there, there is so much, so many things I'd rather do. I'd rather, like, you know, walk on broken glass. <laughs> I really would. No way in hell I'm watching that. But yeah, you know, you can do all this, but clearly it's just a way to stop the bleeding or not even stop the bleeding just put your finger over it it's still seeping out and the thing uh you know it's still seeping out you're still bleeding and um you know i, d- I have noticed in the past year or so that the the um, itv and bbc and channel 4 have really upped well actually to be honest channel 4 have up uh, i think they've been ahead of the game compared to the other th- compared to the other three i don't even register channel 5 to be honest Compared to the other two, um, Channel Four, I think have been have been the bar for original content. You know, for the past decade, they've been doing such great work for TV, uh, TV wise, and you know, for stuff to watch. In my opinion, um, BBC have only in the past couple of years, and ITV as well. I think in the past couple of years, actually started sticking their finger out and actually, you know, gotten great work. You know, obviously BBC had Line of Duty and uh, for obviously for the past few years. That's been that's been pretty much it. You know, the, the others have been oh, obviously Downton Abbey, but I don't even register that because ugh. You know, BBC have BBC need more variety. Personally, that's how I feel. Uh, the, these these old timey shows, I just don't care. I just, I don't care, and it's not even because of my age. I just don't want to watch that kind of shit. I really don't. I don't care about these rich people's problems. It is rich people problems sometimes. It's royal people problems sometimes. I don't care. I don't care. I really don't. So um, that's just how it is. 
but at least they're finally doing something. I don't think it'll work in the long run, but I have to stop the bleeding somehow. So we move on to music, and uh, this is going to be, a, I'm going to keep this quick, partly because of time, and partly because uh, I don't really have, uh, well, I do have an opinion on it, and I could probably stretch out, but I don't, I'd rather not, uh, for, for, for time reasons. Uh, so this is an article, well, it's actually kind of a, yeah, it's an article, uh, commentary anyway, so it's listed, uh, by Bruce Britt of The Undefeated. Uh, this is called Lil Nas X and Blanco Brown show that cultural appropriation ain't nothing but a G thang. Shout out to Snoop Dogg. Uh, so let's get into this. This is obviously talking about cultural appropriation, Lil Nas X being country, Blanco Brown as well, who I've literally just heard in this moment. And uh, yeah, so let's get into it anyway, right quick. Uh, well, look who's appropriating now. Amid ongoing debates about cultural appropriation and the pain caused when corporations and white entertainers profit off the customs of black people and other minorities, along come Lil Nas X and Blanco Brown, two African-American rappers whose tunes have penetrated the upper reaches of, get this, the country music charts. Blanco Brown's The Get Up made headlines recently after it topped Billboard's country songs chart, having also charmed its way into the pop top 40 juxtaposing weepy pedal steel guitar against automated rap beats. The tune is a boot-scooting dance craze tune uh, along the line of Billy Ray Cyrus's 1990 breakthrough hit, A He Breaky Heart. Cyrus, of course, made a cameo, uh, makes a cameo appearance on the Mega Popper remix of Lil Nas X's Old Town Road country rap track. He uses a 9-inch nail samples to celebrate rhinestone cowboy extravagance. I didn't even know that. That's a, that's a fascinating... Uh, uh, fascinating uh, uh, quite, uh, um, tidbit right there. Uh, the timing of that achievement is eerily suspicious. I've skipped a paragraph, by the way. Uh, obviously talking about um, Lil Nas X's 17-week um, uh, uh, streak. is obviously the biggest, uh, longest streak for a song in the Billboard chart. Uh, the timing of that achievement is eerily auspicious. August 2nd was the 40th anniversary of the recording of Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, the first hip-hop track of any consequence, and the song that started a musical revolution. What better way to celebrate rap's 40th birthday than with a country rap single whose historic success underscores hip-hop's borders, border-bounding global appeal? Uh, I, I, I do have a problem with cycle, but I'll, get, I'll, I'll, just, um, I'll just keep going. I'm just going to go down a little bit, just to, just to, just to get to the point of the article, because uh, I just want to talk about it. Uh, moreover, any aspiring country performer will attest is dang it... <laughs> God, so yes, he said dang it. Danged hard to write and perform a hit, yet Lil Nas X and Brown nailed it on their first attempts, which suggests they understand and respect country culture big time. But for the sake of argument, let's imagine that Lil Nas X and Brown really are culture vultures, just looking to make a buck in country music. Isn't it about time we black folks did more cultural borrowing? In the never-ending appropriation debate, we are often the most egregiously offended people and understandably so, from redlining and voter suppression to racial profiling. We're constantly reminded of the institutional disdain this country has for its African-American citizens. Given this contempt, it's maddening to witness the white ruling class appropriate our culture, imitating, commodifying everything from our music and fashion to our colloquialisms and mannerisms. Just a side note, uh, the Kardashians uh, uh, had the had the audacity to... Uh, get um, uh, 
bodysuits and have one leg covered and one leg not, which was made popular by Florence Griffith. Was it Florence Griffith Joyner uh, from back in the day? I think I think it was Florence Griffith Joyner. Let me check. Yes, it was Florence Griffith Joyner. She did that shit in the 80s, bro. Come on. This ain't new. Sick of this Kardashian shit. Always, oh, we've done, we've, we've, you know, and you see like AE Entertainment going like, oh, the Kardashians have done it again. No, they haven't. <laughs> they really haven't. But anyway, continuing on. Um, I think you're getting the point of this article right quick. Uh, just, you know, um, there's a lot of uh, talk about, you know, uh, country music and, uh, uh, and its connection to rap and obviously the fact of cultural appropriation which it does get into the point that I want to make, which I'll uh, just uh, hover over right quick uh, in this paragraph. Um, the cultural rep- reciprocity is the promise of appropriation, and only time will tell if Lil Nas X and Brown can make cowboy culture more palatable to black people. But even if such a miracle never occurs, who cares? The ultimate message of Old Town Road is be yourself, even that, even if that means emulating someone else's culture. The song's declarative chorus, Can't Nobody Tell Me Nothing, appears to epitomise Lil Nas X's defiant philosophy about his unhip country lifestyle, a notion underscored by the song's surreal music video in which Lil Nas X stares down a hip-hop dancer. Lil Nas X is refusing to be lumped in with anyone simple-minded enough to only embrace the products of their own race and culture. In this sense, Old Town Road is as thematically beholden to Sammy Sammy Davis Jr.'s I've Gotta Be Me as to any rap or country song of yore. Um... So just to just to say, and uh, my main point of all this is that, you know, the the origins, the origins always, most are, are very black as well as you know they obviously are very they're they're they're, they're white country roots I'm sure, um well, obviously, but there are black country roots as well. So to say this is appropriation is a little bit a little bit a little bit on thin ice let's just say that it's a little bit on thin ice um but other than that it's just um it's just one of those things where um i for one am fine with it because like i said i don't really consider it cultural appropriation you can you can see you can you can consider it people consider it appropriation now obviously because there were so many white people in the old western films back in the day, the John Waynes and all that. Fuck John Wayne, and and country music has been dominated by white people for your, for yonder, for all these years, you know, for decades, and it's just considered that. Um, but to say that there's been no black country music until now, you know, what I mean, it's absurd. It's, abs- it's absurd to think about. It's just that we. It's just that, well, not we, it's just that African Americans don't rate country for whatever reason. You know, it's, 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 it's just how it is. We've, we've, I keep saying we like I'm African American, but still, you know, uh, African Americans create blues music, soul music, R&B, jazz, come on. They have, you know, black people have had have had all of these arts. Nearly some of them, some of them taken away from, them, not all of them, um, but appropriate as well. It ain't new. And to say that country is, but and to have these tears about oh, it's 
they're appropriating country. They're not. They're not. They're not applying to country rules and and another thing, right? Is country music even that deep rooted? You know, in its um, in its in its origins. I mean, what 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 what, what do they talk about? What what what's the what's the what's the what's the archetype of a country of a country song? Just a question. I'm not educated. I will say that. You know, I'm I'm, I'm trying not to be. Condescending, but I guess I am in 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 my tone. But yeah, it's um, country music just ain't it. Just to be just to be real. So you know, it's um, big up Lil Nas X, big up uh, the 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 other one. <laughs> but uh, uh, just keep doing your things. It's not appropriation. You know, there there've been black country music. I'm sure. Uh, is is has been black music in every other. In every other uh, 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 American uh, uh, genre of music that you think is white, so why shouldn't country be any different? But if a country historian wants to come at me, by all means come at me because I'm just being ignorant on, on this on this case. <laughs> final topic of the day second life topic um, it's just a, it's, a, it's just something interesting I found honestly um, I always wonder in the times we're in as a, as a country the United Kingdom I always wonder what do other countries like see you know when they, when they, when they see us now because it's been three years of all this garbage and Surely the sheen of the UK has been you know, taken off. Um, you know, if you look at tourism, London's still the second most visited uh, country, uh, country, uh, second most visited city in the world. Uh, Bangkok is the first. And uh, yeah, a side note: Why is Bangkok the first? I know it's you know Thailand, and you know it's cool, but really number one. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah. So even though those numbers are fine. I just wonder how the perception of our country is. So, luckily for me, I found this. So this is by the Guardian. Um, something resembling hell. How so? How does the rest of the world view the UK? So they have several you know, writers or just uh, people of note in several in several countries. Uh, it's mostly writers actually, and uh, they just give their opinion on how the country they're talking that they're they're in uh, how they view in, uh, how they view the UK so the first one's in China and this is by Liu Ye editor of the international editor of international affairs at Sanlian Life Week magazine in Beijing I remember the day of the referendum it was very hot in Beijing that morning and I had gone to a meeting with my publishing agent I kept checking the BBC app on my phone for news finally after leaving the meeting while waiting for my taxi the phone buzzed the UK chose to leave Suddenly I was reminded of an old Yugoslav film, Water Defend Sarajevo, which was very popular in China in the 1970s. There is a famous line that many Chinese people remember. The air is shaking as if the sky is going to burn. The storm is coming. Within a few hours I published an article titled The Storm is Coming. It was read by more than 100,000 people in just one hour. Later I persuaded my editor to do a cover story on EU leave. Uh, the B word. Uh, we put that with, out within 72 hours under the headline B, uh, are we facing the reversal of globalization? That edition sold almost 200,000 copies, even more than I report on Donald Trump's uh, presidential win. Uh, 
Not many Chinese people care about the technical or legal details of the deal, uh, but the saga has made an impression. The reputation of British democracy has suffered. If you ask someone on the streets of Beijing what they think of B, uh, they might say democracy only leads to confusion. I know that's not true, but it's difficult to change their impression. I mean, there's a bit of um, there's a bit of a bias there, considering <laughs> China ain't democratic in the way. But anyway, uh, this one, the next one, is by France. Uh, this is by uh, Sylvie Kaufman. Editorial editor, editor, uh, editorial director, and contributor to Le Monde. Um, for B has made uh, has made Frexit possible. God damn it! These these corny words. Stop it. Four years ago, Marine Le Pen could still float the Frexit temptation and lead some of her supporters to believe leaving the EU will somehow solve France's problems. By the time she launched her campaign for the 2017 presidential election, the, the referendum had already had one effect. The Front National leader no longer dared push her Frexit argument anymore, confining herself instead to attacking the Euro and advocating a return to the old Frank. Even this proved a bad idea. But for us, this has been the only silver lining of the saga. Watching the long descent of Westminster into something resembling hell has been exhausting, an exhausting experience. Theresa May's very British resilience was impressive, but we ended up pitying her. Nigel Farage's type was all too familiar to us. We well understood uh, just how dangerous he was. Some of us found uh, once found Boris Johnson funny. We long ago stopped laughing. John Pergau's ties and desperate calls for order made a good show, but on the whole, this was a cast with too many villain, too many villains, and too many heroes. God, if that ain't in a, uh, if ain't that, all of this in a nutshell, that's great. Um, I'm mostly, I'm mostly doing small paragraphs here just for time. Uh, there is uh, plenty more they talk about, uh, but I'm just getting to the point. This is uh, Germany. This is by Quay Fam, staff writer of Zit magazine. Uh, the German language is so fascinating. Not in a not in a I want to learn it way. Just in that shit scares me kind of way. It's just ugh. imagine talking about imagine doing a love poem in German. How angry you sound! Ugh. It, it just don't sound. It doesn't sound sexy as a language. It's just just ugh. Ugh, God. Anyway, <laughs> for our readers at Dizit, uh, it's they have die. It's just a casual word. You know what I mean? It's just it's just it's not it's not a, it's not a a fun language. It just really isn't. Uh, for readers, for our readers at Dizit, Boris Johnson is by far the most intriguing character in the drama. He makes them come out in a rash. <laughs> he makes them come out in a rash. It's as if they are allergic to him. They feel he has been disdainful towards Europeans, treating Europe as a big joke. That view will stick around even, even as Prime Minister quoting witty lines in Latin won't change that. Interesting. Uh, Japan, uh, Nobuyuki Suzuki, Media and Entertainment News Editor uh, for the Tokyo Shimbun Newspaper. Uh, where to go to? With or without a deal, leaving the EU is a bad idea, and I hope somehow that it won't happen. I don't think David Cameron never thought that Britain would vote to leave, but voters were influenced by fake news claims about membership of the EU and what leaving would mean. I feel sorry for British voters. A lot of people who voted to leave saw themselves victims of globalisation. If I was a British factory worker and I had lost my job... I would have been tempted to support leaving the EU. The gap between rich and poor was growing. Immigration was also an issue. People looked around and thought, I want to go back to the way Britain was. I don't think voters were given enough information about what the voter, what the issues were. 
what the issues were before the referendum, and there should have been more discussion of the risks and benefit of leaving. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is considering calling for a referendum on revising Japan's post-war constitution to legally recognise the self-defence forces, Japan's de facto military. If if the exit has taught, has taught us anything, is that the media have to do more to ensure that the public has a proper grasp of both sides of the argument. See, this is great. Um, and there's also one by India, which is just glorious but uh, I'll, I'll leave you i'll leave that for you guys to read um just uh, please please read that one especially that one because the dude just goes in and because he's and because obviously india and india's history of the uk it's just great they, they just they just oh they just rub it in it's, it's so it's, it's, it's so fun it's so fun you have to laugh at this kind of shit sometimes and that's why I've, that's why i've uh attempted to do right here so anyway ladies and gentlemen that has been what's good uh apologies for the uh, lengthy two topics and then the non-lengthy other two topics. I, I completely lost my sense of time there. Once I got to the once I got to the third topic, it was forty minutes in. I was like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> so um, a little bit of a of a. a uh, I have to I have to sort out my timings, obviously, clearly, uh, in fe- for a future episodes there. So always always something to improve on for myself. So I shall try and do that. But anyway, guys, I hope you enjoy the show. But besides that. Um, obviously a good variety there as always um music is uh, too much by vanilla and the in- uh, the interludes is uh, vista by poldor their links to their pages via Bandcamp will be in the descriptions below be sure to listen to their music i listen to their music constantly anyway so it's kind of a it's a, it's a breeze for me anyway uh thanks to chop records for the ability to use their music uh, for the licensing and uh yeah, that's pretty much it, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth Home Podcast Network. I have been Charlie Taylor. This has been What's Good. Hope you guys have a good week. I shall try and do the same. And until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.